Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. We're continuing on with our look at the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, a four-part series, really quick, as we go through this really short book. Uh, which has only 48 verses, but a lot of truth. And so we're going to start with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3. So if you want to open your Bible to that passage, we'll look at it together. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then tidings reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we perish not. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, so that is Jonah chapter 3. Only 10 verses, but there's a lot here to unpack. And I guess you could really say this is Jonah 2.0, or Jonah rebooted, because remember how I told you the book of Jonah is split up into two sections, you know, chapter 1 and 2, and chapter 3 and 4. And at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, Jonah gets this call from God to go preach to Nineveh, uh, preach to the Ninevites, and try to get them to repent. And he says, I don't want to do it. These guys were the sworn enemies of the Israelites. The the Assyrians are incredibly violent. We talked about that. So he runs away. He disobeys. But now, now, after he's been swallowed up by the fish and God saves his life from the deep, we mentioned that in our last episode, looking at chapter 2, the fish spits him out on dry land at God's command. The fish is obedient to God. We'll see if Joseph or uh, Jonah is now. And of course, he kind of is, but we'll talk about his interior state uh, in terms of what he was doing later on. But certainly in terms of the preaching, he does do what God commands. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches to them. So he gets a second chance. And the Ninevites also get a second chance at life too. And this is incredibly surprising. So when, when it says that... Jonah goes to the great city of Nineveh. How how big is this city? It's apparently three days' walk across. Some people think that's a bit of hyperbole there. It could simply mean 
Nineveh and the surrounding area, almost like to use a modern day example, Chicago land, you know, there's the downtown area, but of course there's, there's lots of suburbs around the city. It's a pretty big metropolitan area. So we might be talking about the metropolitan Nineveh area. And then God tells Jonah, go to that great city, proclaim the message that I tell you. Now, in terms of the greatness of the city, how is it great? Certainly what the people were into, their, their sins were, well, their sins were certainly very great, uh, but I think it's great in the sense that it mattered to God. Despite their evil, despite the wrong things they had done, God cared about the Ninevites, just as he cares about you and I. Uh, if there was only one person on planet Earth, Christ would have still come to redeem that person. So God goes to great lengths to save us. He certainly does that in the person of Christ. He takes the trouble of coming to earth himself and emptying himself of his prerogatives. As St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, and then allowing himself to be crucified. Why does he do this? For our salvation, for our souls, because we matter to him, and he'll go to any length to try to save us. And this is exactly what God does with Nineveh. Even when Jonah runs away, he, he, he picks him up out of the sea, and he plops him back on dry land and says, no, you're going. I'm going to great lengths to get you there, and you've got a job to do. So the message is what God wants Jonah to say. It's not what Jonah wants to say, but it's what God wants him to tell the Ninevites. And and this is really important. We can fall into this trap as well, that we can get into the temptation of wanting to edit the message of God. What's the message that uh, Jonah has to preach to the Ninevites? 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. You've got 40 days to repent, folks or else it's going to be too late for you. And so he doesn't get to edit the message. He doesn't get to change it. He'd rather even not tell them the message because he wants them to be destroyed. We'll get into that next time. But it's, it's something that we have to deal with too. The world would like us to edit the message of God to make it more palatable for modern people. You often hear the question, when is the church going to get with the times? But as Peter Kreeft wrote, the church doesn't want to get with the times. The church doesn't read the times like the New York Times or the L.A. Times. The church doesn't read the Times, but the eternities. And the church is concerned about eternal verities, eternal truth. And the church reads the teaching of Christ. And the church is also not the author or the editor of these teachings, but only the mail carrier. And Peter Kreeft used to say this too. A lot of times people accuse the Catholic Church of wanting to wield so much authority over people's lives. But he says, actually, these other Christian groups, they claim to have a lot more authority than the Catholic Church because they think they have the authority to change the teaching of Christ about marriage, divorce, or morality, you name it. And we've seen this happen in liberal Protestant denominations. And by the way, those churches are largely empty as they've tried to accommodate uh, their message to the world. The world has said, no thanks. And that's unsurprising because it's not challenging and it's not true. And so the church is only the mail carrier. Our job is to get the teaching of Christ passed on intact to the next generation. So this is exactly what Jonah does. He goes out into Nineveh to preach, and he's got a message to proclaim. And so his sermon really, honestly, it could have been a tweet. It's just a few words. 
could have saved them all. And Lord, can I just not send a tweet uh, rather than do all this traveling? And come on, uh, boat trips and being in the fish's belly. This seems like a lot of work. It's just a few words. That's all his message is. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, you know, it's probably a condensation of the message. He probably said a few other things as well. Uh, we don't know for sure, though. But it is a pretty shocking message to the Ninevites. And you would expect them to kind of ignore it because, again, they, they didn't know much about the true and living God. They were Syrians. They weren't part of the people of God, uh, the nation of Israel. So they don't have a whole lot to go on. And that's why it's so miraculous what happens next, especially considering how far gone they were in terms of their violence and the way that they that they were living. It's a miracle. They, they believe the message. They, they take it to heart. And, in fact, in the gospel, and we'll, we'll look at this a little bit later, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus mentions the people of Nineveh as an example of repentance. He said, look, the people of Nineveh at the judgment will condemn this generation. That's Jesus' generation because they repented and you guys aren't repenting, even though you're seeing much greater things than what they saw. And so that's what they do. That's what they do. They hear the word of God spoken to them through the mouth of the prophet Jonah and they respond to it. They respond to it. And they don't just respond in words. They respond in deeds. They turn away. And that's what repentance really means. And when Jesus starts his ministry and he says, repent and believe in the gospel, this idea of repenting, it's like a 180 degree turnaround. You're going in one direction and you just pivot and you go back to God. You go back to God. And to believe, it doesn't simply mean to intellectually assent to something, to a set, to a set of propositions uh, concerning the gospel. Oh, yeah, okay, all right, I get that, get that. Okay, I believe it. You don't just say it. To believe in the gospel means to become obedient to. Repent, change, and believe. Become obedient to the gospel. There's a new way of life here. And that's what they do. They turn away, the Ninevites do, from violence, and they were wickedly violent, and, and all the evil that they were committing that they were into. And not only do the people repent, th this goes right to the top. The very king of Nineveh gets down from his throne, takes off his royal robes, and he repents. He puts on sackcloth, which is, of course, it's kind of like wearing a potato sack. It's really rough. It's really uncomfortable. It's a sign of repentance, putting ashes on your head sitting with ashes on your lap. Again, it's it's this reference to the book of Genesis, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. From dust you were taken, and from dust you will return. To dust you will return. And so this is this sackcloth was kind of made of goat's hair. It was it was really not comfortable. Talk about a hair shirt. And poor people would often wear things like this, but th this is a serious sign of of humility on the part of the king. And it's also a lot of trust in God. Again, he doesn't have much to go on. This guy has not been taught about the scriptures. He's not been taught about the mighty deeds of the true and living God. And he says, you know what? Let's repent. And we've been told that in 40 days, if we don't repent, you know, God's going to overthrow the city. But but actually, he doesn't even, he's not even told that. He just said, Jonah just says in 40 days, God's going to overthrow the city. So maybe we can change God's mind here. If we repent, that, that's kind of their hope. And it's a genuine, really, change that they have. And so this is a model of repentance for us, too, because 
G.K. Chesterton, the great convert to Catholicism, the great British writer, he talked about two ditches that we can fall into, and they're kind of on either side of the road, that straight path toward God. And, and one ditch that we can fall into is, is called presumption. That's when you say, God must forgive me. And the other ditch on the other side of the road that we can fall into is, is the ditch of despair, saying, God can't forgive me. I've done something so terrible that there's no way that God can forgive me. And so the Ninevites might have been feeling that way because they had done some pretty dastardly deeds, but they didn't. They actually said, it's possible. God can forgive me. I'm going to trust here. And when Jesus talks in the New Testament about the unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit, I believe this is what he's talking about, the sin of despair. And it's really a sin, saying that God can't forgive me. There's no sin that God can't forgive if you turn back to him. And so it's a little bit like if your doctor tells you that you need a life-saving heart transplant, but you say, I don't trust this guy. He's lying to me. He's not telling me the truth. So you don't get the surgery, and as a result, you die. (laughs) You don't trust the surgeon. And so this is a little bit like despair, saying God can't forgive me. But we also don't want to fall into this other ditch of presumption. God must forgive me. And I think this is a great temptation for people today. Uh, They think, well, you know, I'm Catholic. I'm born Catholic. I'm I'm in the church. I've I've received all my sacraments. I'm good. God's got to forgive me in the end. Well, if you fall into... Uh, mortal sin, and and you don't repent, and you're not sorry, and you don't seek God's forgiveness. I don't know about that. And, and here's here's the danger too. You, you you can always say to yourself, "I'll do it later. I'll do it later." But th- this is a trick of the enemy because what happens is as you the further you go on, the harder your heart can become towards the things of God. It's like Pharaoh. You know, his heart was hardened. You know, did he harden his own heart or did God harden his heart? People argue about that. But he hardened his own heart because he just stubbornly persisted in his sin. So the, the, the idea that you're going to somehow magically repent and want to change your ways and it's going to be genuine at the, at the end of it all, you're just going to flip the switch, I think that's pretty naive. It's a little bit like uh, being a couch potato and thinking you can enter into the Olympic trials and you know, win the 100-meter dash. It's not going to happen. So we've got to start now. And so th- these are the false repentances that we, that we want to avoid. Uh, look at Judas. You know, he was sorry, not sorry, as people say today. Sorry, not sorry. He People, people often ask the difference. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? Because they both did something terrible. They both denied Christ, their Lord and Master. Peter repented, and it seems like Judas repented, but he, but he really didn't. You know, he took the money back, said, here's your money, your blood money, I don't want this. Um but he was not repenting unto God. He was repenting only unto human beings. And if he had really turned back to Christ and asked for forgiveness, he could have gotten it, just as Peter did. But he gave into despair. He fell into that ditch. And that's why he hung himself. The suicide, it was a sign, of course, that, that he had fallen into despair of being forgiven. Now, just a side sidebar note on suicide. Mo- suicide is, technically speaking, obviously a, a mortal sin, but most people who commit suicide, they're not in a good mental state. They're not thinking clearly. Uh, in many cases, there's outright mental illness. And so uh, that is a mitigating factor. Uh, because to be guilty of a mortal sin, you've got to know in it, what you're doing. You have to know it's a mortal sin. Plus, you have to do it with full freedom. Full knowledge, full freedom. 
And many of them don't have that because of the various depressions that they're in and, and mental illnesses that they have. So just a, a sidebar note on that. But the, the, the Ninevites, when they got this message from Jonah, they didn't think that this was, there was any chance for them to manipulate God. They didn't think they could bargain with God. They just, they say, we've got to be genuine about this. We can't repent on the inside, but not on the outside. We can't say, oh yeah, we repent, because we know that's not going to fool God, because he sees the inside. And pe people often do that. They say, well, you know, I'm sorry, but they really don't mean it. They don't change their life. There's no genuine repentance. There's no desire to reform oneself. Love is deeds, not sweet words. We can say all the things we want, but our actions tell the real story about what's really going on inside. And so we can see by the Ninevites' actions, they, they literally repented. They did some physical, there's some proof there in the way they comported themselves. They went on a fast. They dressed in sackcloth and, and put ashes on themselves. These were signs, outward signs of what was going on interiorly. And so there's got to be a change in our lives. A lot of commentators note how what happened and how God spared the Ninevites is very similar to what God said to the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 18, it says this. Uh, this is God speaking to Jeremiah the prophet, the weeping prophet Jeremiah. He had a rough life. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? says the Lord. Like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, but if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. Okay, so that's an example of what, what God says to Jeremiah. And this is what the Ninevites did, a nation that turned from its evil and God changes his mind and he doesn't bring about this calamity of judgment. Now, I want to speak just, just really quickly about this idea of can God change his mind? Now, this is what's called an anthropomorphism, which is a $5 word, basically meaning that the only way we can really understand God is by analogy. Uh, to to use human terms that are familiar to us to help us to help him communicate. This is how he communicates to us, and it's a little bit like when you're when you're speaking to an infant. You don't start off with quantum physics. You start off with goo goo gaga because that's all they can understand. So God accommodates himself to our way of speaking by uh, having this stuff in Scripture. It talks about God changing His mind, and then this passage we saw God repenting of the evil which He was going to do. He doesn't. God doesn't need to repent of anything. God's not guilty of any sin, and God doesn't change his mind. But this is just a way for us to understand. Uh, so God knew what was going to happen. God knew that they were going to repent, but they were still. They still had free will. They still had free will. They're still freely acting. But God, because He's omniscient, because He's all knowing, He knows what they're going to do in the future. So, and this is really what the incarnation is all about. Talk about God accommodating himself to us, to our ways of communicating, our ways of being. He actually takes on human flesh and thinks with a human mind and loves with a human heart, uh, smiles with a human face, and so gives his life, you know, with a human body. And so, so that we can understand the love of God. That's really what it's about. So we see the response of the Ninevites in the last verse, in, in verse 10. 
God sees that they repent and they they are not destroyed. And so this has huge, huge application to our lives. First thing that we need to see is that Jonah had to repent himself before he could preach to the Ninevites. Uh, he, he wanted to he was disobedient to God as well, just as they were in a different way, of course. But Jonah was still saying no to God. So we can't give what we don't have. This is something that St. Augustine talked a lot about uh, in his writings. And I remember when I was on my journey back into the Catholic Church, when I was still a Protestant minister, I met with this Catholic priest. And a friend of mine had set up this meeting for me, and I didn't know this guy. And quite frankly, you know, from a human point of view, he, he didn't impress me that much. He was late for the meeting. His shirt was hanging out, you know, untucked. He was just a, a kind of a mess, uh, rough mannerisms. And I was kind of saying to him, well, maybe I could just remain as a Protestant minister and just teach people Catholic stuff from where I'm at. Maybe I don't actually have to come back into the church. And I, How else are they going to find out about Catholic truth if I don't tell them? And this priest looked at me and said, you can't give what you don't have. <laughs> And he was right. He was right. You, 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 you don't possess this yourself right now, so you can't possibly pass it on to, any, to anyone else either. So you, you've got to repent. You've got to live it out. You've got to come back into the church yourself, and then you can start talking to other people about it. I think this is what happened with Jonah. He had to repent. He had to experience God's salvation himself, which he did. We talked in the last uh, episode about really his falling into the ocean. It was like a death liturgy. He was going to be wrapped in the in the linens, the, the burial linens of the seaweed and left for dead. But God saved him uh, with this fish. And so uh, he saves us as well so that we can go and share the truth with others. And the Catholic Church is not our own little club. The word Catholic means universal. It's for all people. And there's actually two meanings to the word Catholic, kataholos in Greek. The other word, uh, meaning of the word is according to the whole. It means that we have the full meal deal, all of the teachings of Christ, we, with none of them thrown out. Like so many other groups who have left the church, they usually focus on one thing, throw a whole bunch of other stuff out. Uh, we keep it all. And so the, it's for everyone. It's kataholos. It's universal. It's Catholic. And so we, we are sort of meant to, this is part of the deal with our baptism, we need to become saints ourselves. And we need to help other people to become saints. Holiness and apostolate. Holiness and evangelism. It goes hand in hand. So this is what Jonah was trying to do. Get them to share in the mercy of God. And so another thing that we can we can learn from uh, Jonah chapter 3, and you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Is that when people change on the individual level, really whole societies can change. We've seen how the gospel uh, throughout the centuries, every single place where the gospel has been preached, life has gotten better. Society has gotten better. Marriages have been made more strong. And families, uh, hospitals and schools were built. Things were better. The rule of law, all of this comes from the Catholic Christian faith, the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so every every place where the gospel is denied, every place where the gospel is rejected, eventually society begins to go downhill when it's not lived well. And so what we see here with Nineveh is how repentance ripples through all of society. And so this is something that we can understand and it should give us a lot of hope because our, our current society is a lot like 
Nineveh. A lot of violence, a lot of bloodshed, uh, disrespect for human life, uh, euthanasia and abortion. The weakest among us are not protected. And so people have rejected God. People have tried to live without him, and it doesn't work. And so we can't give up on these people because you never know. They may repent, just as the Ninevites did. So when, when we look at uh, what they did and how they changed their lives, it really makes me think about the book of James in the New Testament. There's so much that James has to say that really is kind of a picture of what the Ninevites did in a certain sense. Here's what James says in his letter in chapter 1, verse 22 and following. He says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, lo- what he looks like. But he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer that acts, he shall be blessed in his doing. We see that for the Ninevites, they acted upon uh, the information that they had. They, they repented with deeds outwardly. They changed their lives. It wasn't just an internal thing. So faith and works working together. And of course, uh, later on, in James in chapter 2, there's this famous passage about how faith without works is dead, beginning at verse 14 in James 2. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed in a lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish fellow, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is is dead. There's so much that we can say about that. But that last little example of Rahab, uh, she she really was dealing with her enemies, but she helped them. And, and her works were credited to her as righteousness. Abraham believed. And again, to believe is not just to know intellectually, it's to become obedient to the message. But Jonah, as we'll see in the next episode, he still has some learning to do. Because Jonah himself didn't want the Ninevites to repent. In fact, as Tim Keller says, he, he actually enjoyed preaching wrath. He was, he was just preaching this message saying, hey, 40 days more and Nineveh is going to be overthrown, <laughs> and I can't wait, in essence. He was preaching this with glee, not with tears, because he couldn't wait for God's hammer to fall upon them. So he had to learn himself to be more like God in his outlook. Did he really love his enemies? 
Dorothy Day once said this, I can only say that I love God to the extent that I love the person I love the least. That is a really, really powerful challenge. Thanks for joining me today on The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Kale Clark. If you missed an episode, you can always catch them in podcast form on the relevant radio app. I'll join you in the next one, and I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central, right here on Relevant Radio for The Kale Clark Show. Until next time, God bless you.